0: okay so just like i was expecting um i got a little pushback from from folks about the last podcast we did on revelation chapter seven uh and you know and hey when you when you start thinking them talking about things that uh that people have heard about you know over and over again their whole lives you, you you're usually gonna gonna hit a nerve if you don't say exactly what uh, what's already been said so it's not really a big surprise but i did tell you from the very beginning that uh that eschatology and, and revelation in particular are um they're, they're very emotional for people and and everyone has their own ideas about what's going to happen and what these texts mean and and you know i'm i'm all good with that and i hope that uh i hope that you've heard me say more than once that there's there's room at the cross for differing views on this particular topic uh, you know, we stand hard and fast uh, with no alteration about the gospel, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the other essential doctrines of the the Christian faith where Christians must be united, you know, just in order to have fellowship with one another and that that call themselves Christians, a definitional to the faith. But the eschatology isn't one of those doctrines. I mean, we believe in bodily resurrection. We believe in uh, Christ coming physically bodily and those things we agree on but uh, the exact um the exact meaning of of uh the the times and events of the end is are, are things that we can disagree on and and not have to break fellowship with each other or get upset or anything like that we can we can discuss those things um We have to, I've said this before as well, and I'll probably say it every time because uh, I noticed last week we did the the 144,000, and when you put you know, who are the 144,000, uh, as the title of something, a lot of people are going to jump into the study at that particular point, rather than going back and listening to chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. So I'm probably going to repeat myself a few times about needing to be, uh, uh, the need for humility as we come to these ancient apocalyptic texts, understanding that, you know, great and godly people have disagreed about them for centuries. So if, if you are a, you know, if you are are uh, disagreeing and flat out just denying the things that we're saying, and and I hope that you're at least looking at it from the standpoint, as you can see where I'm coming up with my conclusions. That's really the point of what I'm trying to do is not just to tell you, hey, this is what it means, but to give you kind of a, a, a framework of how we understand what it means that way. You know, if you hold another position, you know, more power to you knock yourself out. I'm not going I'm not going to argue with you, Uh, but at least you understand how we come to the the understanding that we have uh, from the context of the Old Testament, the allusions that John's giving from the Old Testament and the the historical setting in which he wrote in the first century. Uh, That all being said, let me say that I do believe that I am interpreting Revelation correctly. (laughs) And that the other views uh, have holes big enough to drive trucks through them. Uh, so I'm not waffling on the whole issue. I'm I'm just saying that I can have Christian fellowship and love for those who who think I'm dead wrong and they think the same thing about my position. I'm, I'm not going to debate with other believers or all that, you know, there's room at the cross. So uh, that being said in the future, if you have a problem or if you are just uh, wanting to let me know just how off base I am, you can send all your emails and complaints to info at com. They would love to, they would love to get those. No, not really. I'm just kidding. Uh, the only thing I ask is that you just don't dismiss the things that we're saying without investigating, studying uh, the way that we're interpreting the text. Don't just say you're wrong. Demonstrate that the method of interpretation that we're using is, is not correct and why it's not correct. Um, We've been trying to talk about what the text actually says and the reference to the Old Testament, uh, and that's what we're going to continue to do. So <clears throat> as always, test everything, hold fast to that, which is good. So in the last chapter, we, we, we saw the sealing of God's people. Judgment's been withheld. We saw that for a short time so that the people of God can be sealed and preserved before God pours out his, his judgment, his wrath. Uh, we also saw... That the hundred and forty-four thousand and the multitude that no man can number are the same group. That's where a lot of people got upset. Uh, John heard their number, but what he saw was the multitude, and then we explained that rather fully last time in the in the podcast. And at the end of chapter seven, John applies three Old Testament promises to the people of Israel. He applies them to the multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it, it's really hard for me to uh, it's really hard for me to get around that. Uh, The angel has gone through. He sealed God's people. And now the judgments are about to get begin as we pick up in chapter eight. So in this chapter, chapter eight, this is where we're actually going to see the last seal of the book that's open. Remember that six seals were opened in chapter six and we saw the four horsemen and all that. Um, Then we had uh, this interlude in chapter seven, where God's people were sealed and judgment was held back until the 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 faithful remnant were sealed. Uh, Now in the chapter in chapter eight, the seventh seal is about to be opened, and when this seal is broken, the seven trumpets are going to uh, be brought forth. The seven trumpet judgments are going to be poured out. So the the seventh seal really releases the, the series of seven trumpet judgments. Um, now, the trumpet judgments are going to be very interesting because, well, the first four for sure, and there's some people that say the first five uh, are going to are actually going to parallel uh, the Some of the plagues of Egypt that we see in exodus we 're going to see hail and fire we 're going to see water turn to blood we 're going to see darkness we 're going to see locusts you know as uh, other things that are that are going to be there as well other things with references uh, to them we'll we 'll talk about those parallels as we go um, we 're going to talk about the similarities and the references as we get to them, but this in itself is um, it's telling as to how we're to uh, as how we're interpreting the book. Um, there's there's only one nation in Scripture that was promised to experience the plagues of Egypt if they refused to keep covenant with God. It was it was Israel herself. In Deuteronomy 28 verses 58 through 60, it says God told Israel through Moses, He said, "If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored." uh an awesome name, the Lord your God, and then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues, and miserable and chronic sickness, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt on which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. And interestingly enough, we're gonna see this a few times in this chapter in Revelation 11, verse 8, which we haven't got to yet, but in that chapter, 11, verse verse 8, John is told that the great city where the Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem, is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, so not only do these trumpet judgments mirror the plagues of Egypt, but uh, actually the city of Jerusalem is called spiritually Egypt in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. Uh, we'll talk more about that later as well. So let's just get into uh, chapter 8. We'll start with verse 1 and 2. It says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, seven seals broken here, uh, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. So, here in the first two verses, the last seal is broken. Presumably, now the book is fully open. There's some question about whether the book could be opened as, or the scroll could be unrolled as the seals go, or whether you had to open all seven seals in order to open the book. So, um, that really you know uh, it's interesting but it doesn't affect the way we we see what's going on in revelation uh at this point we're told that there's silence in heaven now up to now i don't know if you've noticed or not but there's been a lot of stuff going on a lot of noise a lot of noisy stuff going on i mean the heavenly court has been worshiping and singing uh you can go back and see that chapter four chapter five the 24 elders the four living creatures along with all of creation in heaven earth and under the earth are worshiping the one on the throne the lamb they sing they're singing their songs worthy is the lamb to open the book and all that's going on and we've seen thundering and earthquakes and 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 all that came with the presence of god we've seen the writing out of the four horsemen and war and, and pestilence and all these things. And even in the last chapter that we just looked at, we saw the great multitude of people uh, singing their new song to God. And, and all of this together, it just creates this, this, this noise you can imagine what all this would would be like i mean remember we're reading it but john was seeing visions of it so you can imagine what john was hearing as he was uh, uh experiencing all these visionary you know things all these this multitude singing all of creation worshiping the thunders and the earthquakes and you can imagine what john is experiencing And, you know, and all this would have created a a whole bunch of noise. It would probably be extremely loud as these sights and sounds, you know, overwhelm his senses. Uh, And then finally, we come to it and the lamb breaks the the final seal. The books finally open. And as the last seal breaks and the book falls open, releasing the covenant judgments of God, all of heaven falls silent. Uh, What a different picture this is. I, I get the picture in my mind of everyone standing around. In the throne room uh, with wide eyes and maybe their their hands over their mouths because they 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 know that God's judgment will be, you know, it's going to be held back no more. Uh, uh, some people think that the silence here is so that the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the martyrs, uh, which we're going to see in the next few verses, can be heard. Others think that um, the half hour of silence was the amount of time it took the priests in the tabernacle to offer the incense during the time of prayer. We're going to see that that uh, is um, is particularly uh, uh notable here because we're going to see that presented here in just a second the incense being offered at the at the altar uh, and so there's a very good possibility that because the next picture we see is the angel acting as the priest offering the incense you can see that uh that uh this is a possibility that uh during the hour of prayer when the priest offered the incense there was uh, there was there was silence and Um, you can see that going on in in the beginning of Luke's gospel. If you want to look into it, you know, Zechariah, if you remember John the Baptist's father, he goes into the temple to offer the incense and that's where he gets the vision where they tell him the angel tells him what to name John and, and all those things. But it says that when he was in there offering incense, the people were outside praying, um, But I think most appropriately, this is I mean, it's it's just the calm before the storm. I mean, everything is is silent. Everything falls quiet. Um, it, something, something immense is about to happen. It's a dramatic effect. Um, you can see it as John, John sees all this stuff. <clears throat> the last thing John has is these people singing, the multitude singing, and all these things going on. And all of a sudden, the book falls open, and there's silence. Everything's quiet. It's a moment of awe and wonder when, when everything stops because God Himself's about to act. When uh, when the final seal is broken, what's brought forth is seven angels who are given seven trumpets. Um, Each angel is going to blow his trumpet in turn. And and these trumpets are going to, of course, release judgment upon the land. Uh, But the idea of seven trumpets. Really wouldn't be new to someone who is familiar with the the temple's history, the history of worship in in ancient Israel. Um, David had seven men blowing trumpets, along with many other people doing a lot of other things when he brought the ark of the covenant back to the house of God. Uh, you know, in Jerusalem, that you can find that in First Chronicles fifteen twenty four, and then um, Nehemiah also had seven priests blowing trumpets in in Nehemiah twelve forty one, um, and so. Trumpets were used throughout Israel's history. I mean, you can go all the way back to the beginning. They, they were used to call the army to assemble for battle. They were used to uh, call the people to assemble before the Lord. Uh, they were used to uh, let the camps of Israel know that they were setting out when in the days of the tabernacle. Um, But the idea of seven trumpet blasts is going to find its greatest amount of recollection uh, and probably with us as well as the first century readers in the Battle of Jericho when Joshua uh, crossed the Jordan into the promised land. I'm sure you all know the story. This huge city with with these great walls stood in opposition to God's people. Um, It was the first big obstacle in, in the promised land. Uh, they were coming to inherit the promise, and, and God delivered this city into their hands. All they had to do was to march around the city blowing trumpets once a day uh, for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times blowing trumpets. And, And you know, when they shouted the walls, the walls fell down. Well, now there is here another city that's standing in opposition to God with high walls. Uh, and, and God's people uh, are are uh, are. A, being opposed by it and persecuted by it um this city will also hear the seven blasts of the trumpets sounding the judgment of god upon them and when all is said and done there this city will be given destruction as well but the angels it's interesting the angels aren't going to start just blowing trumpets yet uh something else is going to happen first Um, revelation 8 verse 3 and 4 it says Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angels hand just like in exodus remember i said that these are gonna the, the exodus plagues are gonna be uh, in view here as we look at these trumpet judgments but just like in exodus exodus the the judgments are going to pour forth when god hears the cries of his people the prayers of his saints uh god told moses that he has heard the cries of anguish of his people and they have come up before him and in the same way the prayers of his saints are coming up before him now the angels standing before the heavenly altar i mean uh do you remember the last time we saw this altar you remember what was happening we, we saw it in revelation six verses nine through 11 we saw this altar and underneath it was the souls of the martyrs and what were they doing they were crying out to god for justice uh they were calling for god to bring justice for the deaths um, here we see that the angel um, uh, appears holding a golden censer, which is what the priests in the tabernacle offered the, the incense with. And he mixes the incense with uh, these prayers for justice and presents them before God. If you're wondering, it just just occurred to me, if you're wondering, why are the people praying um, for justice against Jerusalem, against uh, against uh um, the old covenant people if that's a question that you're asking you probably haven't listened to chapter six so i would uh, so i would uh, encourage you to go back and listen to our podcast we made that plain and clear using texts from the the new testament uh and even jesus's own words um but back to the incense in in the old testament the incense of the priest uh, it symbolized the prayers of God's people going up before him. You can see that Psalm 141 in the first two verses. It says, Oh, Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering um, and, and as well on the day of atonement, the high priest offered uh, the incense with the with the burnt offerings. Um, you can see that in Leviticus 16:12. Uh, it says he shall take. He's talking about the high priest. He shall take a fire pan, which is a censer, uh, full of coals of fire from the upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. So, what we're seeing here in Revelation is God accepting the prayers of His people who are crying for. Justice that God gives the angel. The incense to mix with uh, with the prayers, and and this angel is doing the work that we saw that we saw modeled in the Old Testament. Actually, it was modeled from the heavenly courtroom to the earthly. Uh, but we have reference to it. God commanded this to be done in the Old Testament days of the tabernacle that um, you would go, the priest would go, and he would mix the incense and he would put it on the the burnt offering, and it would make the offering acceptable to God. And and just like in the old testament god himself um gives the incense i don't know if you noticed that when we read the uh verse in revelation revelation 8 uh verse uh, verse 3 it says and another angel came and stood at the altar holding gold golden censer it says and much incense was given Uh, was given to him so just like in the old testament god himself gave the priests in the old testament the precise mixture that they were to use to make the incense and offer before him and and they weren't allowed to use the mixture for anything else but the point here the point here if you're getting lost in all this is that god is the one who makes the the saint's prayers acceptable to him and what you see here is uh the uh The uh, the acceptance of those prayers all the way back in chapter six, we saw the the prayers going up before him saying, you know, crying out for justice. How long are we going to have to wait to be uh, to for our deaths to be avenged and all those things? And they're told to wait a little longer. Well, now we have this final this silence in heaven as the seal seal final seal of the book is open. And we have uh, the trumpets, uh, the trumpet uh, angels are are, uh, standing forth to blow their trumpets. And then finally, uh, you see the this angel that's coming in the in the um, in the model of the, the high priest of the Old Testament, uh, taking fire from the altar and, uh, and mixing it with incense and mixing those with the prayers of the saints. And they are offered up before God there. What we're seeing here is that uh, uh, the angels doing the work of the priest in the heavenly temple. He's offering the prayers and the incense before God and God's going to answer he's going to answer shortly by bringing justice. And so judgment is coming and it all starts with fire from the altar of God. It's interesting. This little section verses three through five. Um, when you think in, in, verses one and two, it says the angels come forth with trumpets. You think the next thing that should happen was, okay, now the first angel is going to blow his trumpet, but no, this is stuck right in between there. It's stuck in the middle That this. This goes on before the first angel blows his trumpet. Um, the fire from the altar is kindled. The, the, incense is mixed with the prayers of those who, who are crying for for god's justice and it's offered on the altar and then we see in verse five it says then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth i would say to the land and there followed peals of thunder sounds and flashing flashes of lightning and an earthquake so the angel offers the incense right and then takes fire from the altar throws it upon the land the fire on the altar was was a really big deal in the old testament in, in old testament tabernacle worship fire uh the fire on the altar actually came from god himself i mean it wasn't like you could just strike a match or knock two flints together and and light the altar fire uh in, in regard to the tabernacle you can read it in leviticus 9 verses 23 and 24 uh it says moses and aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people the glory of the the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And the same thing happened when Solomon first commissioned the temple. Uh, in Second Chronicles verse chapter seven verse one, it says, "Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice. The glory of the Lord filled the house." It was the priest's job to keep the fire burning at all times, to uh, perpetually keep that fire burning. But the fire was started initially in both settings, was started by God himself. The priest was just to keep it going. The priests even carried that fire from place to place in order to start other holy fires. Um, this is the background of what we're seeing here in, in heaven in the um, In Leviticus 16 verses 12 and 13, uh, the command is given to the priest. It says he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. And that's on the ark and the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. We saw that before. I think I read that before. Um, But that's the image that we're seeing here. This angel, which is the minister of God, he's doing the. Uh, In the heavenly tabernacle, what God commanded the priest to do in the earthly tabernacle. And after the angel takes the fire from the altar, it says he casts it down upon the land. He cast it down upon the earth. Uh, Remember, remember that the word gay is translated land in many different contexts. And I believe Revelation should be one of those. Uh, But what is this all about? Why does he throw the fire on the on the on the earth and what does that mean and why does it happen before the before the judgments even start before the first angel blows his trumpet? Well, when when Joshua was taking possession of the land and and many other times throughout the Old Testament, um, when when they found idolatry among the cities as they were inhabiting the land um, uh, in these times, people were often called upon to destroy entire cities uh some of the english translations um some of the english translations will say that the lord commanded that the city and everything be devoted to destruction or devoted to the lord Uh, but the text actually says that they would be under the ban under the ban Um, you can see this is commanded before they ever even enter the promised land in deuteronomy 13 twelve verse seventeen it says If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of the city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you've not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it's true And the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city. And all its booty with fire, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, and it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be re- rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand, in order that the Lord, uh, in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase, just as he sworn to your father. So, um, several times in the in the Old Testament, they were commanded to place things under the ban, and what that means meant was uh, everything that was under the ban. When a city became under the ban, uh, everything was destroyed. They gathered everything into the middle of the city and They burned it. They burned it with fire. Uh, Everything under the ban was to be off limits to them. Uh, Several times in Joshua, things are said to be under the ban, devoted to destruction by fire. Uh, You probably remember Achan in Joshua chapter seven, who actually took some of the valuables from Jericho and he hid them in his in his tent. Of course, he was found out and and when he was found to have these things under the ban, he and his family were killed. Uh, Now, when the city was under the ban devoted to destruction, the only acceptable way to burn it was with holy fire from the altar. In Leviticus chapter 10, most of you probably know this story. Two of Aaron's sons are struck dead because they offered strange fire or foreign fire on the altar rather than the holy fire that was started by God. So what we're seeing here is that fire from the altar is being cast upon another land that is under the ban because of her idolatry. Uh, The land is being offered up to God and devoted to destruction for their rejection of God's covenant and their murder of uh, of his Messiah. Now, I know how that sounds. I know how that sounds to people who've been raised, you know, being taught something else about about the quote unquote Holy Land. Uh, but in reality, Jesus Himself foretold that this fire would rain down. in In Luke twelve forty nine, He said, "I have come to cast fire upon the earth." Uh, I would say, laying there and how I wish it were already kindled. Uh, That doesn't sound like quite the meek and mild Jesus that we're used to hearing about. Uh, But perhaps the most persuasive. I hope you're still with me. uh, The most persuasive piece of evidence for me uh, about what this is, this fire from the altar being cast down uh, onto onto to demonstrate that Jerusalem herself is now under the ban um, is found in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 provides uh uh undeniable background To this passage. If you remember from the last time, Revelation 7, the sealing of God's people, um, it was modeled after Ezekiel 9. You remember that, where an angel is told to go throughout the city of Jerusalem and place a mark on those who groan for the sin of the city. Uh, The the point was that Babylon is coming to destroy the city and God is marking out those that are his. That was the background for Revelation 7, the sealing of the 144,000. Well, the next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 10, starts like this, and it talks about fire being thrown from the altar onto the city. It says in Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 1, it says, Then I looked and behold in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. We've seen this before. This is the same vision Ezekiel had in Ezekiel 1. It's the same vision that John sees the heavenly throne room. Um, This is the same throne room that we're seeing in Revelation. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen. This is an angel from, from chapter 9. He said, Enter between the worldly wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim that's the between the cherubim is the altar the mercy seat with a throne of god and scatter them over the city so revelation 7 which we saw last week and ezekiel 9 both show us the ceiling of god's people because in we know that in ezekiel 9 babylon's coming to destroy jerusalem and so that's the background of revelation 7 and then in revelation 8 and ezekiel 10 both show us that fire from the altar comes next as it is cast on the land in ezekiel there is no doubt whatsoever that it is the city of jerusalem upon which the coals of fire are cast and this was a prophecy of the coming babylonian destruction of the city the same context applies here as we see the announcement of the coming roman destruction of the city and these judgments which which um come from the destructive Roman army are actually sent and ordained by the very hand of God. At the end of verse five, we see once again, the presence of God manifest as it was on Mount Sinai. You know, we see the earthquakes and thunder and the lightning. And we saw all those in Exodus 19 verses six through 19. Um, but it is interesting that we're going to see an intensification of these pictures as we go throughout the book of, of revelation. Greg Beale points out that, um, Over through the course of uh, uh, of revelation, as we look through these things, you're going to see these manifestations, uh, uh, increase in let me give you an example in in chapter 4 verse 5 we saw lightnings we saw sounds we saw thunders right and right here in chapter 8 verse 5 we see lightning sounds thunders and now earthquakes are added in chapter 11 verse 19 we're going to see lightning sounds thunders earthquakes and great hail is going to be added and then in chapter 16 verses 18 Through twenty one, they're going to use. We're going to the judgments themselves, and the very presence of God Himself are going to loom larger and larger as the end moves moves closer and closer. So, all that the the fire from the altar, the the angel quote priest offering the incense mixed with the prayers of the saints Um, God has heard the cries of his people just like he did in the exodus and he has cast uh, uh, fire from the altar upon the city just like he did in Ezekiel chapter 10 uh, demonstrating that the city is now under the ban and devoted to destruction there's no turning back there's no uh, there's no turning around there's no uh, uh, there's no if they would just do this I would whatever Uh, they The city is now under the ban. It's under the it's devoted to destruction before the Lord and the people of God are sealed. uh, And now the the ban has been placed upon the city itself. And now after this has been accomplished and completed, the angels will begin to blow their trumpets and release the judgments that uh, that the uh, the martyrs under the altar have been praying for. In verse six, it says, Uh, And the and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So here we go. Uh, Let's look at the first first trumpet. Verse seven says the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth, to the land. And a third of the land was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So the first judgment we have is hail and fire mixed with blood thrown upon the land. Uh, If you know the Exodus story or have ever seen the Ten Commandments movie, uh, you know that this is one of the plagues that came upon Egypt for refusing to let his people go. Um, In Exodus nine verses 24 through 25, it says, so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all uh, through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. So in both the Exodus story and here in Revelation, we have hail and fire that destroys the vegetation of the land here in revelation uh the judgments i hope you've noticed that they have intensified no longer are we talking about one-fourth of the land now we're talking about one-third of the land so you can see that the hail and the fire in in uh, egypt uh primarily uh it says it killed both man and beast and that's where the blood mingled with hail and fire and revelation comes from but it was hail mixed with fire that destroyed the vegetation the green grass the trees all the things around and we see that same thing here in uh same thing here in, in, in revelation. Uh, if you have ever seen pictures or if you've ever been to the Holy land, the quote unquote Holy land, you probably recognize, you know, the, in most places, uh, the dusty barren landscape, but it hasn't always been that way. Uh, when the Romans came, they destroyed everything. Um, in Josephus wars of the Jews, uh, book three, section four, uh, Paragraph one, uh, nor it says, nor did the Romans out of the anger they bore at this attempt, leave off either by night or by day, burning the places in the plain or stealing away the cattle that were in the country and killing whatsoever appeared capable of fighting perpetually and leading the weaker people as slaves into captivity so that Galilee was all over filled with fire and and blood no nor was it exempt from any kind of misery and calamity and then later in uh in wars of the jews uh book six uh book six uh section one chapter one uh it says and now the romans although they were greatly distressed in getting together their materials they raised banks in one and twenty days after they had cut down all the trees That were in the country that adjoined to the city and that for 90 furlongs round about, as I have already related, and truly the view, the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing for those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country every way. And its trees were all cut down, nor could any foreigner that had formerly formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change for the war had laid all the signs of beauty to waste Um, so the first trumpet shows that that uh, we see the the imagery of the uh, plague of egypt uh the hail and fire destroying the vegetation and then we see the historical correlation that uh, all the vegetation was indeed destroyed the romans marched through uh, galilee they marched through judea they marched through uh, all those lands and they burned everything they called it uh they they called it um scorched earth. Uh, what a lot of armies did it. You can see it in Alexander uh, as he uh, uh, conquered most of the known world in his day. You can see it as uh, the Romans were fighting the Carthaginians. You can see it all through history, a scorched earth policy. You can even see it in the American civil war in some places is that uh, when the armies moved through, they, dist- they either consumed or destroyed everything. They didn't leave any natural resources whatsoever that uh, the opposing army could come along and used everywhere in their way, when they marched forward they destroyed everything that way there was nothing that could be used against them uh later on and that's exactly what happened and so what you see here is the the um the vegetation of the land uh being the uh the focus of the the first judgment the first trumpet it destroyed the third of the trees and the and the the green grass and all those things and so the first trumpet is blown and now the the second trumpet is about to blow it says verse eight and nine says the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fires was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed now this one right here is very interesting to me i mean a burning mountain what in the world is that a picture of uh is there really a mountain that's burning that's thrown into the sea and what exactly what exactly does that look like? Well, the burning mountain is a reference to Jeremiah fifty-one twenty-five. Um, Jeremiah is prophesying there about, uh, again, he's prophesying against Babylon and calls the kingdom a burnt out mountain. He says, Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burned out mountain. And later in Jeremiah 51, it says, in verse 42 of Jeremiah 51, it says, the sea has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waves. So this identification of the burning mountain uh, as Babylon in, in Jeremiah, it's also confirmed if you look down just a little bit in Jeremiah 51 to verse 63 and 64. By the way, all these quotes from Josephus and all these verses are uh, are written out for you in the outline at com. If you're having trouble keeping up with all these, you can print out that outline and you can follow me as I'm, I'm reading these verses um, in, in, in Jeremiah, 51, 63 and 64. Jeremiah speaks of a scroll of judgment written against Uh, Babylon is tied to a stone and thrown into the water. It says Babylon will sink down and never rise again. And this same thing is what John sees in Revelation 18, 21, which which reads, then a strong angel took up a great stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no longer. So the burning mountain that is thrown into the sea is a reference to Babylon. It's to Jeremiah's prophecy of Babylon, and I've given you three or four different connections that show that that is indeed, uh, indeed the case. Um, the, the burning mountain thrown into the sea is a, re- a reference to Jeremiah's prophecy. But what does that have to do with Revelation? Well, remember that Jerusalem is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt in Revelation eleven eight, right? But if you notice. If you notice there in Revelation uh, 11, verse 8, it's also said that great city where the Lord, where their Lord was crucified. Uh, but if you notice that every time Babylon is used in Revelation, it's always accompanied by the phrase, the great city. Sometimes it just says the great, but uh, most of the time it says the great city. And uh, in, in, in Revelation, it says that in Revelation 18.2, 18.10, 18.21, Babylon, the great city. Um, but if we go back to chapter 11 verse 8 where the same verse where where jerusalem is called sodom and egypt the city where the lord was crucified is called the great city throughout revelation the great city is referring to jerusalem which is now characterized by the names sodom egypt and And Babylon. It is the culmination of those who are opposed to God and His people. They have rejected the Messiah, and therefore there can be no doubt in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, that Jerusalem herself is called spiritually Sodom. And Egypt. But by identifying it as that great city where their Lord was crucified, every other time that great city is used in the book of Revelation, it's talking about Babylon. Uh, And so the, the, The idea of Babylon being thrown into the sea, this burning mountain being cast into the sea, it references Jeremiah's prophecy as it applies now to Jerusalem, who is herself Babylon for rejecting and persecuting the people of God who are in who are in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, if you had trouble following all that, I understand sometimes I get to talking fast and it's clear in my mind and I don't make it exactly clear as I'm speaking. Just rewind the track and listen to it again with pen in hand, Um, you know, uh, uh, write down the references, look them up, see if you can see if you can follow the outline. Uh, But along with all of that evidence that I just showed you, I want to show you that Jesus himself also foretold this picture of Jerusalem. It's something that you've read before, but you may not have connected it with what's going on here in Revelation. In Matthew 21, Jesus has just turned over the tables in the temple, you know, and he's my house is going to be a house of prayer. And and he was on his way out of the city of Jerusalem. He stopped and he cursed a fig tree. And when the disciples remarked about. About it, Jesus said, uh, It says in, in verse 21, and Jesus answered, This is Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. That's Matthew 21, 21 through 22. You ever wondered? who it was that prayed for the mountain to be cast up and thrown into the sea. I mean, have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever known anybody that has prayed that way? And a mountain actually, uh, physically moved and was thrown into the sea. You know, it's puzzled so many people and we've taken it to mean, and it does mean, you know, that, uh, that, Anything's possible if you pray and and trust in Christ and trust in God. I I got that. I don't have any problem with that application whatsoever. And uh, not only have I heard many sermons about it using this text, I've I've preached many. Uh, So I don't have any problem about that. But notice the word this in Jesus' statement. He says he says they were marveling because he cursed the fig tree and he said, you'll never bear fruit again. Of course, we know from other texts that that was a symbol of Jerusalem, uh, never bearing fruit again. Uh, But he says he says he says they marveled at this. He says, if you have faith and don't doubt, you'll not only be able to do this. He said, but even if you say to this mountain, not the mountain or a mountain, but this mountain, what mountain was he standing on when he said that? He was standing on the mountain of Jerusalem. He was coming from the city. He was coming from the turning over of the tables. Have you ever have you ever wondered about this? This saying, have you ever thought about it? I mean, probably not. But Jesus here says that they will pray for it and it will happen. Pray for this mountain, the mountain they're standing on to be thrown into the sea. Well, when are they going to pray for this mountain to be thrown into the sea? In Revelation chapter 8, what happens? What happens? The angel comes with the censer and he mixes it with what? The prayers of the saints. In chapter 6, they're praying for justice. Uh, the prayers of the saints go forth. The trumpets in Revelation 8 do not begin blowing until what happens? The prayers of the martyrs beneath the altar went up before God. But, but uh, so what we see here is that not only do we see the Old Testament reference, Uh, not only do we see the old Testament reference to, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy of, um, of Babylon being destroyed and we connect that with revelations, uh, um, revealing to us that jerusalem is now spiritually babylon and sodom and egypt uh, but we also have the testimony of the lord himself who said you will say to this mountain be removed and thrown into the sea uh, and it will happen and we have the prayers of the saints here in revelation chapter eight going up crying for justice and as the second trumpet blows john sees The burning mountain cast up and thrown into the sea he sees exactly what jesus um said but wait a minute just wait just a second what about the effects um i mean it says a third of the sea becomes blood and uh all the excuse me all the creatures die And even the ships are destroyed. What's that all about? Well, first of all, I hope you made the connection already with the plague of Egypt, where the waters returned to blood. Um, But besides that, we we also have historical evidence that this indeed happened as the Romans invaded the land. Um, Josephus says in in, this is going to be Wars of the Jews, uh, book three, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, book three, section nine. It says because the uh, adjoining region had been laid waste in the war and was not capable of supporting them, they determined to go off to sea. This is line four sixteen. They also built themselves a great many uh, piratical uh, that means pirate ships, and turned pirates upon the sea near to Syria and Phoenicia and Egypt, and made those seas unnavigable to all men. And then later it says in line 422 it says now all these people of Joppa were floating about in the sea in their boats in the morning there fell a violent wind upon them it it is called by those that sail there the black north wind and there dashed their ships one against another and dashed some of them against the rocks and carried many of them by force while they strove against the opposite waves in the main sea for the shore was so rocky and had so many of the enemy upon it that they were afraid to come to the land. Nay, the waves rose so very high that they drowned them, uh, nor was there any place whither they could fly nor any way to save themselves. Uh, While they were thrust out the sea by the violence of the wind, if they stayed where they were and out of the city by the violence of the Romans and much lamentation. Uh, If they stayed where they were and out of the city by the violence of the Romans and much lamentation there was when the ships were dashed against one another and a terrible noise when they were broken to pieces. And some of the multitude that were in them were covered with the waves and so perished. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to get to. I guess it's taken me a while. They were so perished and a great many were embarrassed with the shipwrecks. But some of them thought that to die by their own swords was lighter than by the sea. And so they killed themselves before they were drowned. Although the greatest part of them were carried by the waves and dashed to the pieces against the abrupt parts of the rocks in so much as the sea was bloody a long way. And the maritime parts were full of dead bodies for the Romans came upon those that were carried to the shore and destroyed them. And then in Wars of the Jews, uh, book three, section 10, uh, Later on, Josephus is going to say, he says, and for such as were drowning in the sea. If they lifted their heads up above the water, they were either killed by darts or caught by the vessels. But if in the desperate case they were in, they attempted to swim to their enemies, the Romans cut off either their heads or their hands. And indeed, they were destroyed after various manners every way till the rest being put to flight were forced to get upon the land while the vessels encompassed them about on the sea. But as many of those were repulsed when they were going ashore, they were killed by darts upon the lake. And the Romans leaped out of their vessels and destroyed a great many more upon the land. One might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies for not not one of them escaped and a terrible stink and a very sad sight there was on the following days over that country. For as for the shores, they were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies all swelled. And as uh, the dead bodies were inflamed by the sun and putrefied, they corrupted the air insomuch that misery was not on. Only the object of commiseration to the Jews, but to those that hated them and had been the authors of that misery. And so what we see here is during the Roman War, the seas did indeed. Uh, did indeed turn to blood they did indeed uh were filled with dead bodies and blood and and uh, shipwrecks and and you know there was this when people think of the war uh the the wars of the Jews the Jerusalem war they think simply of land war but it was not so there was also there was also sea battles that were fought there were battles that were fought on the on the the, the large lakes and seas of the region and the the seas surrounding the region they were they were so full of um you know I get the picture of uh, uh the Sea of Galilee being just so filled with blood and dead bodies and and those things that uh it had to have been uh, just completely apocalyptic and remind them of uh the Egyptian plagues uh where all the waters were turned to turn to blood and so the uh, the second trumpet shows us the burning mountain thrown into the sea is a reference to Babylon which is now characterized by the Jerusalem that rejects the Messiah and this uh, uh, when this rejection goes forth the Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy the the city of Jerusalem just like the Babylonians did in Ezekiel and there will be uh, blood running through the running through the seas and it will be in so much as dead bodies and floating parts and all those kind of things were uh um uh, were found on on every hand. Uh, two more judgments before uh before this chapter ends. Uh the third trumpet sounds, Revelation eight Verses 10 through 11, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood and men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Now, here we have some disagreement about what this falling star actually is, Uh, just like the burning mountain before it. Uh, here we see the burning star falling from falling from heaven. Some people see this as another picture of the kingdom of Jerusalem, you know, which is seen as Babylon being destroyed. Um, you know, first you have the star burning, just like the mountain was burning. And uh, people, uh, including myself, see an allusion here to Isaiah 14. That's where uh, uh, Isaiah 14:12 12, we get a picture of Satan, who is the evil power behind Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, falling from heaven. Uh, I have to believe that this is indeed an agent of judgment, a personal agent, not just a kingdom, not just a a symbol of a people group or something like that. Uh, it could very well be Satan himself. We're not explicitly told, uh, but especially if you see Isaiah fourteen twelve being referenced, which, you know, the, the, how you have fallen from heaven, no star of them. You know, it's the same, the same language, but I know for sure that this star that falls from heaven is personal uh, because we're going to see in revelation nine one, we're going to see that the star is called him. Uh, And the key to the bottomless pit will be given to him. And even in Isaiah 14, the star falling from heaven, uh, it fell there. He fell there because of his pride in trying to ascend to the throne of God. You probably know are very familiar with that. So the star is not a thing, but a person, an evil judgment thrown upon the land. The star is even named for us. He's called Wormwood. Well, what does Wormwood mean? Uh, Wormwood is used many times in scripture to denote uh, bitterness, wickedness, uh, suffering. Uh, you can look at, I've put some references on the outline, Proverbs 5, 4, Lamentations 3, 15, uh, Amos 5, 7, different references where wormwood is used for bitterness and wickedness. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that God will judge Jerusalem for its idolatry using this very term. In Jeremiah 9, verse 13 through 16, the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their own heart." After the bales, uh, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Jeremiah says basically the same thing that uh, John is telling is seeing here in Revelation. He says, because of their idolatry, because they have refused to uh, refuse to uh, to worship me in the context of revelation. We know it's through the Messiah that the son of God that he sent. He says, I'm going to give them wormwood. I'm going to give them poisoned water to drink uh, and it's going to kill them. Uh, and this is the judgment. Now, of course, we know Jeremiah was talking about the Babylonians coming to destroy the city. Uh, but also in Jeremiah twenty three fifteen, it says, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the prophets. Behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water for from the prophets of Jerusalem. Pollution has gone forth in all the land. What land is he talking about right there? I would say he was talking about the Holy Land, talking about the Promised Land, because the pollution has gone forth from the prophets of Jerusalem, and it's, he's given a judgment that he's going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. Um, Moses, as well, uses this term to pronounce the judgments to come upon Israel if they break covenant. Deuteronomy twenty nine seventeen through 18 says, moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver and gold. He's talking about the people that live in the land uh, which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Uh, And so these are judgments that are are, um, prophesied to be upon Jerusalem, prophesied to be on the people of God themselves for idolatry. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies about God feeding them wormwood twice, uh, uh, talking about the coming Babylonian destruction. And Moses in the in the. um, the uh, the uh, covenant stipulations Deuteronomy twenty eight and twenty nine before they went into the land told them that if their heart turns away from the Lord to go after these other gods they will bear poisonous fruit and and become wormwood and so these things are found uh, the word wormwood would have been would have been readily understood as not just bitterness and poisonous of course it was but it was also covenant judgment it was also a judgment uh, upon the people for their idolatry uh, these are judgments. Prior Prophesied upon Jerusalem, uh, but look at the effect of the waters. In 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 uh, verse eleven of Revelations, the waters become wormwood. Right, the waters become wormwood, and uh, of course this is an allusion easy to Exodus seven, where the waters are turned to blood, made undrinkable, uh, and, and Exodus uh, seven nineteen. Uh, references the the rivers and the streams being struck, and we we saw this in, in Revelation 11. It says that the. Uh, and the third of the waters became wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Uh, the water was undrinkable. Um, that's what it says in Exodus seven, uh, seven 19 says the rivers and streams were struck. Uh, Exodus seven nineteen, where they, they made bitter became blood. And uh, this is also summarized in Psalm 78, which is a recounting of Israel's history. Uh, it recounts their deliverance from Egypt. It says in, in Psalm 78 verse 44, it says, and turned their rivers to blood, and their streams they could not drink. So it's definitely a reference to the Exodus plague. Uh, the waters became bitter, seems like it's a reversal of Moses turning the bitter water sweet at the uh, at the at mara in in exodus 15 verses 23 to 25 so what you see here if you don't know that story go read exodus 15 22 through 25 uh the bitter water the people were complaining what are we going to do we go back to egypt uh moses uh, miracle from god turns the the bitter water sweet um what we see here is a reversal of that the now the the sweet water the regular water Uh, becomes bitter the covenant has been broken and therefore it has been annulled Uh, many people die from from the waters it's easy to understand how uh, i'm not going to go i've already read so many quotes to you in so many big long sections it's easy to understand how invading armies decimate the water supplies the streams and i've told you how they they cut off all natural resources and they uh you know they poison the water you poison the water and it doesn't just affect them on one day it affects them for months if not years to come uh it's a way to uh it's a way to destroy your uh your enemies um and, of course, that's that's readily available, uh, historical references. Uh, in Revelation eight 12, we're only got two more verses. Uh, it says, The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Fourth trumpet, what happens here? The heavenly lights are struck, the sun, the moon, stars. And we've seen this before. We've seen the same cosmological judgments in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Uh, we've seen that there it wasn't, you know, if one star, if one star falls to the earth, that's it. I mean, the star hits the earth and we're, we're all done for. So we go back to the Old Testament and we see this apocalyptic language when, when you, uh, when you see the destruction of cities over and over again, go back to chapter six and listen to that podcast. Uh, but we talk about when Egypt uh, was, uh, was destroyed. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to make the stars fall and the sun's going to go black. And when Babylon fell to the Medes and the versions uh, we see uh, Isaiah saying, I'm going to make the, you know, the, the earthquake and the sky is going to roll up like a scroll and all those things. Every time we see, uh, we see the destruction of cities described uh, like this, but specifically here, darkness was one of the plagues of Egypt uh, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 29. There was a thick darkness, uh, um, one that could be felt, it says in the, in Exodus. And so what we have here is when the fourth angel sounds, the, um, The lights in the skies are struck and so there is a darkness that the 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 day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way Uh, a third of the day was kept from shining. we're still in the thirds you know we've moved from one fourth to one third a third of the day was kept from shining a third of the night was kept from shining and these are these are also covenant judgments that are pronounced Uh, on God's unfaithful people if you go back to Jeremiah 33 uh, which is one of uh, our favorite passages to quote in the beginning where it says call upon me and I'll answer you show you great amount of things but if you look down in verse 19 through 21 it says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying thus saith the Lord if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the levitical priests my ministers and so he says look you break my covenant in the day and break my covenant in the night he said uh, i'm going to make it so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time that's what it says in jeremiah 33 um Uh, 19 and 20. And so that's exactly what you see here. It says a third of the day was kept from shining. A third of the night was kept from shining. Uh, Also in in Amos chapter 8, speaking to the people and and verses 9 and 10 of Amos chapter 8, it says it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins, baldness on on every head and I will make it a time of mourning for an only son and the end of it will be like a bitter day and so that's Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 prophesying judgment on God's covenant people and then finally at the end I know we've gone way too long. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Uh, we can talk about who this eagle is, probably an angel. Lots of people have different views. Uh, we can talk about the fact that he gives a threefold woe, uh, which uh, anything, any in the Old Testament, something's given three times. It's uh, largely emphasized. But the point of the verse is simple. It's easy to understand. He's warning them. He's warning them, the people of the land. You know, um, there's three more to come. And those three uh, are what we're going to see that's going to be picked up in in uh, in chapter nine.